meaningless. Meaningless. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south, turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, <laughs> yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was already here long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations. And even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Well, welcome to the encouraging words of Ecclesiastes to start your day, right? We're beginning our three-week journey through the book of Ecclesiastes. If you weren't here last Sunday, we handed out... Uh, these bookmarks, there's some on the welcome cards in the back that have a reading schedule on the back for you. Um, I hope that you'll, you'll spend some significant time in these next three weeks in the book of Ecclesiastes. That you'll read, the readings are not long, they're not hard. Um, you can probably read uh, the first six chapters in about 20 minutes to a half an hour. Uh, but I'd encourage you to read maybe a chapter a day, or if you have extra time, read some chapters again. In fact, Here's my challenge to you. If you do it, the third week's reading is one chapter. Instead of just reading it on Monday and being done, read that chapter maybe every day that week. My guess is if you spend significant time in these words, in these chapters, if you read it multiple times, you'll find a different meaning the sixth time you've read it than the first time you've read it. So my invitation to all of you is to, to join us in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's not a book we're awfully familiar with. Besides chapter 3, right, there's a poem in chapter 3 that starts with there's a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. And then it gives us that poem. We know that section. But other than that, we don't know much about Ecclesiastes. We don't gravitate towards this book, honestly, because it's kind of a downer. It's kind of, it's kind of depressing. As you read it, you'll get the impression that, that you're listening to a bitter, cranky old man. You know, the kind of guy who sits down on his lawn and tells the kids to get off my grass, kid. Right? Like you're listening to Mr. Fredrickson early in the movie Up, right? He's just cranky. Life is hard. Everything's bad. In this short book, you're going to hear the honest reflection of a man who, like Mr. Fredrickson, is looking back on his life and taking stock of it. He's reflecting on how he's lived, 
on how he's filled his days and his years, on what he's accomplished, and now what his legacy is going to be. And if the goal of life is to reach the end and be satisfied with how you've lived and what you've done, then this man from Ecclesiastes failed. These pages that you're going to read are filled with regret. So there's your heads up. Be ready for what you're going to read. It's a a book that's really rather sad. So why would we want to read it? Well, obviously, we don't really want to. But let me take a quick survey. In the calendar year 2018 that we just finished, how many of you read all the way through the book of Ecclesiastes? Show of hands. I see one. First service, I had three. So between all of us, there's, there's four of us who have made the decision, hey, I want to read the book of Ecclesiastes. The rest of us said, eh, I think I'll go somewhere else, Right? We don't usually read Ecclesiastes by choice, but we really should. In fact, we should make it required reading for January of every year when we're turning that calendar year and taking stock of of the past year and and the future year. Because, Lord willing, every single one of us will end up in the place and have the opportunity that this author of Ecclesiastes has that we will have time towards the end of our lives to reflect on how we've lived and to reflect on what kind of legacy we are leaving behind. And if we do not want to experience the same discouragement and the same regret that this guy does, then we better start doing some serious reflecting and evaluating of our own lives right now before it's too late. You know, I give that, that challenge to every young couple before I marry them when I go through premarriage counseling with them. Some of you have sat around my table for premarriage counseling. And towards the end of one of my sessions, we're working on some goal-setting stuff, goals as individuals, but more importantly, goals as a couple. And, and I say to them this. I say, I want the two of you to fast-forward in your lives. Fast-forward to when you both are 95 and you're... You're sitting in your wheelchairs at sunset and you're still holding hands because you still love each other. Fast forward to that moment. What is going to make you say, boy, honey, I wish that we would have. How will you finish that sentence? When you look back on your life and you didn't do, what what is it that you didn't do or you didn't become or that you'll say, I wish we would have. And I say to them, Do it now. (laughs) Make sure you do those things before you get to be 95 and you are only left with regrets. So what if I said to you now, finish that sentence. Fast forward to the end of your life. What are you going to sit there in your wheelchair and say, boy, I wish I would have, but you never did. Now's the time to answer that question before it's too late. That is why we should be reading the book of Ecclesiastes. Right before Plato wrote down Socrates' profound truth that says the unexamined life is not worth living, 
God did. That's what Ecclesiastes is telling us. And too many of us honestly are living unexamined lives. And know up front that one, as one humorist says, taking a lot of selfies doesn't mean you're living an examined life. Okay? It's deeper than that. Through the book of Ecclesiastes, God is challenging all of us to do some serious self-examination so that we won't end up with regrets. So that we might live lives filled with purpose, filled with meaning, so that we will end with contentment and satisfaction instead of regret. That's the goal. So, so know that if you are going to join us on this reading program over the next three weeks, and I hope you will, know that, that reading and reflecting on the words of Ecclesiastes, you're going to be invited to do some serious reflection on your own life. What are your goals? What are your purposes for living? What's really important to you? What is worth living for and what is worth dying for? Those are the kind of questions you are going to have to answer. You're going to answer them along with God. You're going to ask those questions. You're going to find those answers with God. The one who created you. The one who designed you. The one who knows you better than you know yourself. The one who absolutely loves you. So if you take this journey seriously over the next three weeks, it might just reshape your life if you let it. And it might just reshape the conversation you're going to have with yourself at the end of your life if you let it. This morning we look at chapter 1 that you heard earlier. You can take out your Bibles if you would. In front of you, uh, the Bible's in front of you, it's page 539. Ecclesiastes 1, 539. We don't know who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes exactly. Some Bible scholars are absolutely confident that it's Solomon, King Solomon, who wrote Ecclesiastes. And when I get to heaven and find out the truth, I wouldn't be surprised if it was Solomon. There's other really good biblical scholars who are absolutely convinced it was somebody other than Solomon. They don't know who, but they are convinced it wasn't him. I wouldn't be surprised if that's true as well. We really don't know. So in our journey over the next three weeks, we're just going to go by the name that he gives himself in verse 1. He says, I'm the teacher. We're just going to call him the teacher. And this teacher has lived a full, successful, prosperous life. A life that my guess is any one of us would be envious of. And now, with this grand life that he's lived, mostly behind him, he takes stock of what happened between his birth and his impending death. And this summary from chapter 1 that we just heard earlier is pretty deflating. It's pretty discouraging. It's not the kind of encouraging, uplifting words that we like to be inspired by. But I think that is exactly the teacher's point. He's hoping that we will honestly confront these deflating and discouraging results that he has found at the end of his life before we get that far. So that we will turn around and do some honest introspection of our own lives while there's still time to do something about it. He's offering us his story as a warning 
to us. But, just like any warning, you first need to catch their attention, right? He needs to catch our attention and convince us that the life he pursued, the life that in many ways we are pursuing, the life that this world and this culture promotes and tells you, tells me to pursue, that that is a mistake. That that kind of life will leave us filled with regret if we simply continue to buy into the priorities and values of this culture and of this world. That's the point of these first 11 verses of chapter 1. It's a poem that lays bare for us the emptiness that this world will leave us. Let, let me give you a quick lesson in Hebrew poetry to better understand these verses. One of the most common structures of Hebrew poetry that you'll find in, in poems in the Old Testament is called a chiasm, a chiastic structure. Okay, a chiasm is a poem that has parallel lines, lines that say virtually the same thing. And there's a parallel line at the beginning of the poem, and there'll be one at the end of the poem that match. And there's multiple parallel lines that build towards the very center of the poem. And the very center of the poem is the point that the poet is trying to make. Think of it like your March Madness bracket. Okay, right? You got, you got parallel teams on either side, one and one, and two and two, and three and three. And they're parallel, but they all begin to point towards that one center line, which is the winner. The center of the poem is always the winner. So if you work your way through those balanced lines, you find out what the poem's really about. That's what this poem is. The teacher starts in verse 2 by telling us of his great frustrations in life. He can almost make this the title of our poem here. He says, everything is meaningless. Everything is meaningless. So he asks the question in verse three that he's gonna go ahead and answer. The question is, what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? In other words, what is life really all about? And then he shares the significant frustrations that he's discovered as he's explored that question. First of all, he says to us in verse, in verse 4, generations come and generations go. In other words, remember that you will be forgotten. Remember, you will be forgotten. Generations come, generations go. The balance verse is way at the end, verse 11 of the poem. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Okay, there's your first bracket. In other words, if, if your goal in life is to make a name for yourself, is if our goal is to make sure that we are important enough that our kids will remember us and our grandkids will remember us and the whole world will remember us, he says, know right up front that, that our names have a pretty short shelf life. These lives that we live, they certainly are not unimportant. Don't hear him say that. Don't hear him say that you don't matter, right? Lois's prayer on Sanctity of Life Sunday reminds us that every life matters, and we matter, and we are important to God. But 
the dire urgency with which we live our lives, the high anxiety that we inject into all we do, believing that, that who we are and what we do is so very, very essential and we are so important that the future kind of hinges on, on us. Well, that's not true. We will soon be forgotten. That question that? We can prove it here this morning. Let's prove the teacher right. Take a little quiz with me. I need all of you to participate with me, kids and adults as well. Simple questions for you. I got four of them for, for your family history. How many of you here can remember the first and last name of your parents? Raise your hand if you remember your parents' first and last name. Okay, some of you either have short memories or you didn't know your parents very well. Okay, keep your hands up. You got to keep your hands up. You knew, how many, that's first generation. How many of you know the first and last name of your grandparents? Put your hands down if you don't remember those. Okay, mostly, yeah. How about your great-grandparents? How many of you know first and last name of your great Oh, we're dropping now. It's still a good amount. Let's try this. How many of you know the first and last names of your great-great-grandparents? Uh, do I see any hands? I had... I had one first service who remembered. That proves what they say. They say it takes three generations until you will be forgotten. They won't even remember your name anymore. And that's just remembering name. You know, I could remember my great-grandfather's name. I don't know anything about him. I never met him. I don't know what he loved. I don't know what he was passionate about. I don't know how deep his relationship with God was. All I know is his name. You will be forgotten, and so will I. The teacher is already realizing in his old age, and he's probably already starting to be forgotten. So next, next he looks around at creation, this world around him. And he sees nature reenacting that same kind of hopeless generational cycle again and again. There's this never-ending daily and seasonal cycle that doesn't seem to accomplish anything. Right? Nature around him is constantly moving and never accomplishing anything. He says, I watched the north wind blow, and I think, there, it's moving something. And, and then the wind turns around, the front comes through, and the wind blows to the south and undoes everything that the north wind just did. He says, I watch, I watch the sun rise, and it travels, and it sets, and you know what? It's going to rise again and do that same journey again and again and again. And he says, you know, I see these rivers Let's say he lived in Michigan. This teacher lives in Michigan. I see Buck Creek flowing into the Grand River, and the Grand River is this huge river, and by the time it, it hits Grand Haven, it's, a, it's water constantly flowing into Lake Michigan, and it's just one of many of these huge lakes filling up the lake, and the lake never gets full. Why? Because the water evaporates up into the clouds, and the clouds carry it over land, drops it on the land, and flows into the rivers and creeks, and they flow back, and it just all keeps on going again. It's just a cycle that never seems to accomplish anything. The balance on the sign. So he says nature is this never-ending cycle. The balance is verses 9 and 10, where, where he says this. He says, 
What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was there already long ago. It was there before our time. There's nothing new under the sun. The cycles just keep continuing. I'm reminded that every winter, the first snowfall here in Michigan, every winter, I can count on when those first flakes come down, pulling up my Facebook account and having about 20 people say, hey, it's snowing. Like it's never snowed before. You know what does it? My cynical side says, it does it every winter. Every winter it comes. You can count on the snow coming every winter and complaining about the cold. And we can count on then summer coming and we'll complain about the humidity. You can count on the sun setting tonight and it will come up again in the morning. And it will set again tomorrow night. You can count on the leaves changing color next fall and then you'll have to rake them all up again. You can count on the lions breaking your heart next year, just like they did this year and every other year. Nothing's new under the sun, is it? Non-stop effort, little accomplished. And he says, it all just wears me out. Okay, you got your parallel verses. Leaves you with the center of the chiasm left. The heart of the message, verse 8. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What he said, he, he sees this world, this world that wants to put you and put me on this striving treadmill that keeps us running and moving and going and striving and reaching for more and more and more. And it succeeds in putting us on this treadmill. But he says, the things that you're chasing on that world's treadmill will never satisfy. The things of this world never do. They will not bring you the satisfaction you're looking for. He says, the eye, the eye never has enough of seeing. Right, you can go see the most beautiful sunset that you're ever going to see in your life tonight over Lake Michigan. And you know what? You'll keep going back looking for more. Hoping to see better. Hoping to see brighter colors and better pictures. Because your eye is never satisfied. You're going to keep on looking for a brighter summer day. For a more beautiful mountain. For maybe a cuter girlfriend or a boyfriend. And you're never going to be satisfied. The ear never has enough of hearing. You might listen to the best song that you're ever going to listen to in your life, and you're going to keep on listening for a better one. You're going to keep on trying to hear more affirmation, to maybe hear somebody give you a greater title, a greater compliment. He doesn't say it, but we, we prove it with our, with our mouth as well, our taste buds. Where our taste buds are never satisfied. So, if you gave me a bowl of... Dove dark chocolate hearts. Set it in front of me. You know what I'd do? I'd take one, I'd eat that dark chocolate heart, and I would be totally satisfied because I love dark chocolate. You know what I'd do next? I'd open up a second one. And I'd eat another one because the second one's got to be better than the first, right? And it wouldn't be. And so you know what I'd do then? Instead of quitting, I'd try a third one. And I'd keep going until the bowl is empty probably. And you know what? It doesn't get any better. 
In fact, if anything, I feel sicker every time I eat more. But I'm going to keep trying for more. I'm never satisfied. There is never enough. The teacher has spent all of his years on the world's treadmill getting more. And what has he gained from it all? He has gained the wisdom to realize that everything he's gotten is worthless, meaningless. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. He has learned that there is more to life than what the world says there is. Just blindly living life according to the ways of the world, according to the priorities that this world gives you, will leave you empty. No, it will leave you full, full of regret, full of disappointment, full of sadness and grief. And he desperately wants us to know that so that we might live differently, so that, so that we can take the less off of meaningless, so that we can discover true purpose and meaning and contentment in life, so that we can experience satisfaction at the end instead of regret. That's what he wants for you, for me. There's more to chapter one, but if you're looking for a happy ending, it doesn't come in chapter one. This teacher doesn't put a nice little bow at the end of his poem to leave us walking out of here with some kind of great hope or assurance. In fact, he doesn't do that for most of the book. For most of these chapters, there might be little nuggets, little hints of hopefulness, but mostly he's going to leave us uncomfortable. That's what he's going to He's going to leave us uncomfortable. Because until you and I are, are uncomfortable enough to honestly take stock of our own lives, what we're living for, what we are striving for, what purposes we are pursuing... Until we're uncomfortable enough to ask those questions, we will continue to blindly run on this treadmill. Get more, do more, be more, taste more, see more, experience more. Until we are uncomfortable enough to honestly take stock of our lives and how we are living, we will never quiet down long enough to hear God's still small voice and we will never change. He wants to make us uncomfortable enough to change. So be ready. As you read chapters 1 through 6 this week, or 7 through 11, if you're reading ahead of time, be ready to be uncomfortable. And don't run away from that discomfort. Lean into it. Listen to it and hear your own life spoken on these pages. Look at it and see your own striving on these pages. Because if you think that you are the exception to what the teacher has learned, think again. You're not. I'm not. And know that an answer is coming. Comfort is on its way. But you won't hear it unless you first of all know how much you need it, unless we are first of all uncomfortable. So listen to God as you, 
as we together work our way through Ecclesiastes and be ready to learn from the teacher. And perhaps when you stand where he stands, you will look more like the second half of up. You'll look, at, you'll look, more, look more like Mr. Fredrickson filled with blessing instead of bitterness. Would you pray with me? Father God, some of us are embarking on a journey through Ecclesiastes that we probably wouldn't choose to make unless we were doing it together here. We probably wouldn't choose to read these words in this book unless we were prompted to by you. And so help us, first of all, to hear that prompting, to hear your invitation to read these words and to read them more than just with our eyes, but to read them with our hearts and to let the truth that they say sink in. Give us great courage, because that's what we need, Father. We need courage to be able to look into our own lives, the lives that we have built over the years with things that, that we value, with goals that we're striving for, with purposes that we desire. Give us the courage to listen to you, with goals you desire, with purposes you wish for us to strive for. And if we have that courage, Father, thank you that some of us will hear a well done from you. Some of us will read these words and say, yes, thank you, Father, for letting me hear this earlier, for letting me, for letting me hear the words of your spirit and for shaping my life according to your purposes. But Father, if we have the courage to honestly read these words and apply them to our lives, my guess is all of us will also sense your Holy Spirit asking us to change for your glory and for our good, to reset some life priorities, to change some behaviors, to kill off some desires, and to grow some other desires. This is a journey you want us to be on, Father. And so we humbly take this step and open our hearts and open our lives to your spirit. Give us the ears to hear what you have to say. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.